Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. Uh, this is your host, John Landis. Be with you tonight, enjoying with you an interview as part of the NYU series that we've been featuring, a um, series of NYU jazz interviews that they've done for their students, led by uh, Dave Schroeder, who's the head of the, head of the music school there, the Steinhardt School. Um, and uh, this is an interview um, of Peter Erskine, a uh, very interesting guy, um, drummer, um, of note uh, in uh, the past decades and has been with some some really wonderful groups and has produced some wonderful music. Um, he uh, he was with Weather Report and those of you know Weather Report is really kind of a super group um, and in a lot of ways with some just amazing people um, changing personnel over time back and forth but uh, people like uh, Peter himself, Joe Zawinol, um uh, Wayne Shorter, Jocko Pistorius. Um, so really, that's 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 a pretty incredible lineup, and it did change over the years. And then later on, he was with a group called uh, Steps Ahead, also an amazing band. Uh, really give it a listen. Um, people like Mike Mineri, uh, Peter um, Erskine, Dan Grolnick, Mike Stern, Randy Brecker, Michael Brecker. Uh, just a, a wonderful lineup in various different ways, and really interesting music. So we can learn a lot from Peter. Again, these are these are interviews that I think this one was done in front of the, some of the students at NYU in the jazz program. So let's give it a listen and uh, enjoy. This is part one of two parts of interviews with Peter Erskine and some some music uh, featured as well. Welcome to the NYU Steinhardt Jazz Interview Series, and today we're in Southern California with one of the iconic drummers of our time and a great person and one of my favorite drummers, Mr. Peter Erskine. Thank you, David. This is a beautiful studio. My beautiful, small, humble, but productive and, and very fun studio. Mm. I'd like to start the interview by talking about your, your career, but let's start from the, the beginning, because I know a lot of my students and people are interested in how musicians got started, how they got into the business, and how they moved from being a student of the music into a professional career. So I know that you grew up in New Jersey and your, and your family, your parents were very supportive of mm -hmm. music, especially your father, I think. Right. I think I actually met your father once at an IAJE convention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He came up to me and said, I'm Peter Erskine's father. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember that convention well. Uh, we, uh, we met up uh, in the hotel room. Uh, before I was going to play a concert, and he had just come back from a Bill Dobbins uh, presentation uh, about the music of Duke Ellington. And, and, you know, over the years, my father had been to plenty of medical conferences, and uh, he was a psychiatrist, so uh, uh, he was no stranger to, to high-level uh, talks, discussions. And, and, and he, said, he said, that is by far the most informative, most entertaining, you know, the best lecture I've ever heard. He, he was just dazzled. Mm. And of course, Dobbins is such a smart guy and mm -hmm. a brilliant musician. Um, I think you captured it in a nutshell. I had a very supportive family. Now, my dad had been a bass player when he was younger. Mm. And that's how he paid his way through school, mm -hmm. college and medical school, playing gigs. Um, of the four children, and I was the youngest, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I was the only one that I think really showed 
that keen of an interest in music. Um, but I, I had, uh, you know, a brother, two sisters, and both parents kind of rooting for me the whole time. Um, and, and that was the key thing. Uh, one other factor uh, was that my sisters, who were both very attractive, uh, seemed to date a lot of jazz musicians. And so uh, when their boyfriends, one or the other, would, would come over, um, they wanted to get me out of their hair. Uh, so they'd bring along... Um, was this when they were in high school? Or no, no, that was when I was in grade school. It was like you know, wow. seven, eight, nine. So you were really younger than you were. I was, yeah, I was quite a bit yeah. younger. Um, so uh, you know, miles ahead, the guy brought that. So, you know, here I am quite young, getting, uh, getting turned on to Johnny Carisi uh, at a really early age. Not just the, so it wasn't just the big names. It was all the important supporting players, people who were part of the evolution. And back in the days of LPs, um, you could develop a relationship with an album. Because you could spend a week or two weeks with that 40 minutes max of music and, and know every note and, uh, and read uh, all the liner notes about the album, look at the photos, daydream about maybe one day being one of those musicians in the white shirt and the, mm -hmm. the tie in the studio. And uh, it's a different game now when you have you know, 10,000 songs in your iPhone. It's, it's hard to develop a, a, that knowledgeable or, or intimate of a relationship. Uh, and, and, I said knowledgeable and intimate. Let's focus on intimate because that's the beauty of getting to know any, I think, anything, anybody, any piece of art is that sense of intimacy, the sense that you and, and that object of art share something. You have a relationship. Now take that idea and move it back to the 20s and 30s where you had side A and side B and you might have had two or three records and you wore those out constantly. Yeah, and with the needles they had back yeah, then, yeah. it wasn't too hard to wear records right. out. Um, you would catch things on the radio. When, uh, when I was young, we caught things on television. I think thanks primarily to CBS, which for some reason seemed to be the one network that had an artistic conscience. Yeah. So not only would you be able to see Leonard Bernstein, presenting the young people's concerts, which often included jazz, but they had jazz specials. And, and speaking of special, I mean, things were special. Wizard of Oz would come on once a year. I remember as a kid, like, man, you know, yeah, five yeah. weeks, Wizard of Oz is coming up, you know, can't wait. Um, and now, you know, everything's on demand. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, all those performances that were a distant memory, or maybe we thought were lost. You can find so much of that on YouTube. But here's the thing, and, and I'm, I'm not one of these uh, older people that uh, lament like well, the youth today or mm -hmm. uh, doing this wrong or that wrong. Because number one, I think the, the, the playing levels and abilities are far beyond anything that we imagined were possible when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, what I regret for them is that they never got the chance to experience sitting in front of Art Blakey's bass drum. 
you know, they they never got to hug Alvin Jones and get soaking wet from him. Um, to hear the Ellington band with Duke, and, and I saw Duke and Rufus, Speedy Jones, yeah. duking it out about Duke's count-off. <laughs> Duke finally gave up. <laughs> uh, or the Basie band, I, you know, just night after night, standing in front of it, and that, just that wash. But that power. was your father, right? Your father was into it, so he was taking you. He would take me, and then I would go on my own. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I grew up near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and there was a place called the Steel Pier, and they had a ballroom, mm -hmm. and the big bands would come and play there for a week. Now, the other tricky thing that young musicians have, and myself included now, you know, the standard, the, the, the bar, uh, are the recordings that we aspire to, you know, that level of just somewhat approaching the fringes of the greatness of our jazz heroes, right? Uh, and they were uh, plying their trade, developing their art, five, six, seven nights a week, two, three, four shows or sets a night. You know, and jazz clubs would host a band, and, and they, 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 they could do this without having to travel every single day, uh, although sometimes they would do that. Um, by the time I started touring, it's, uh, we, we had occasional week-long stays in, in clubs. There were still jazz clubs, but we did a lot of traveling. Nowadays, it's, it's almost always just one-nighters. Um, and if you don't travel to play, you get a gig here and a gig there. I mean, this week I've been very busy, but I've been on the soundstage at Warner Brothers Studios uh, working on a TV film. And uh, so yesterday, let me see, they wanted the drum part to, uh, uh, they said this is supposed to be a gay medieval disco. <laughs> <laughs> we came up with it, but... Uh, but but that's you know that's 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 one kind of a challenge. But mm -hmm. the challenge to to really be able to play improvised music at the level that we want. Um, okay, you want the simple answer how to do it? Okay, two things I found. Number one, just play what you'd like to hear. Now. Uh, an, an informed set of choices can be made by by having listened to as much of this music as possible. Um, and what's the uh, what was the second thing? That's ah, not important. No. Um, <laughs> um, we'll play as much as you can.
You're listening to WLIW-FM, also heard on WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. And this is the Jam Session Radio Hour in an interview of Peter Erskine by Dave Schroeder. The great jazz players, even in their older years, the ones that we listen to and are still dazzled by their intelligence, by their reflexes, because they stay in the game. You can't 
stop playing improvised music. It's all about choices. And you make good choices when you're your musical reflexes are, are mm -hmm. sharp. Uh, you know, it's a game of inches, but we're just talking microseconds. If, if somebody's really not conversant with being conversational, you hear it. And, and, and so I think one of the guiding things ever since I first went on the road, which was back in 1972, I just turned 18 and joined Stan Kenton's band, mm -hmm. um, and I saw musicians come and go from bands, and, and that kind of be the last you'd hear of them. And I thought, you know, staying power means staying with it. Um, and so that's kind of what I did. And, and you develop the constitution. Was there ever a time that you thought, this isn't for me, I'm going to go into psychiatry like my dad? No. I mean, there were moments, like on tour with Weather Report, I remember a couple of times when I just thought, you know, maybe I should just go home. This is, uh, the, the, it was getting pretty hot in the kitchen. Um, but the, the overriding awareness was that these guys know a lot more about this than I do. Mm -hmm. So, Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that's some of my favorite Peter Erskine is with Weather Report. Mm. And well, I'm kind of jazzed up right now because uh, it was a real passion project and, and also a labor of love and a lot of frustration to get this, what has turned out to be a four CD box set. It's called the Legendary Live Tapes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had all these cassette tapes uh, from various Weather Report concert. I would, I, concerts. I would ask the, the front of house engineer, Brian Risner, Hey, would you mind recording tonight's show? Uh, and I had a real nice Sony cassette deck. Mm -hmm. well, I'm a little bit of a gadget guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I was sort of documenting the band the entire time. I was the only one in the band that seemed to have a camera. I was always taking photos, and I was recording the band as much as I could. Uh, my dad even came and videotaped uh, two or three concerts. It's a big, clunky RCA camera and, and a big deck, it was like the size of a suitcase and no tripod, he's holding on to this, a pair of two-hour concerts. <laughs> um, and he got aboard the uh, feed of, of the audio. And then, and then Zavanel, uh said he was not comfortable with my father filming the band, so he asked him to stop. So I said, Dad, sorry. A few years later, I was in New York City speaking with Joe, and Joe said, you know, I really wish I'd, I'd let your father record more of this because th this, this was a band called Weather Update, a short-lived mm -hmm. uh, venture. And, and Joe said, because you know what? We were, we were playing better tunes back then. Mm. And, 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 and I joined a band that, you know, I loved. I loved Weather Report. Mm -hmm. I loved their music before they were in Weather Report. I mean, Miroslav I knew from Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. Ayerto I was already hip to. Mm -hmm. uh, Alphonse Ruzan, that was the first time I'd, I'd heard him that I was aware of. Um, but, you know, I met Zavanel when I was seven years old at a Stan Kenton National Stage Band wow. camp. So check this out. So my parents drive me from New Jersey to Bloomington, Indiana. It's 
It just turned seven. Uh, long before there were interstate highways, mm -hmm. particularly in West Virginia. I remember that was a brutal uh, trip. But two and a half days later, we're in, we're in Indiana. Um, and I, I dug it. I think it gave me a, a taste of the road life that, that stuck with me. Uh, you know, the, the idea of staying in a motel and had a little swimming pool in the middle of a parking lot, and little bars of soap. This all seemed pretty cool to me, you know. Um, so we go to this summer camp. Now, they weren't called jazz camps back then. Jazz was still a dirty word. So there were euphemisms like stage band camp. Lab band stuff. This would have been the late 50s. Then. This is 61. 61. It was still the very first camp was at Michigan State, and then Indiana University became a host campus. Uh, so uh, a lot of faculty from North Texas, which was really the first school to have such an important jazz program, as well as Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and Cannibal Adderley's band was in residence. So I got to study with Lewis Hayes in addition to. Charlie Perry and Clem DeRosa and these well-known names in, in early jazz education. But check out some of the students who were there that same year. Keith Jarrett, Don Grolnick, Lou Marini Jr., David Sanborn, Randy Brecker, Gary Burton had been to the camp the year before, uh, Jim McNeely. I mean, it's pretty far out. Mm. Um, and, and that would feed us for the rest of the year. You know, well, you were just seven. I was you, just seven. And you were playing? Yeah, I started when I was five. Wow. Um, and was lucky enough to, to get a teacher who was uh, gentle enough, and yet um, he, Johnny wasn't rigorous. I mean, I wanted to, to study the drums. Maybe I wouldn't practice as much as I should have some weeks, but he, he taught me how to read and, and uh, exposed me to a lot of great music. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so... Uh, you know, uh, I was listening to, to a lot of Art Blakey when I was young. Uh, he gave me the Rich versus Roach, Buddy Rich and Max Roach album. And uh, the first track on that album was uh, Sing, Sing, Sing. And Buddy's band is playing and Max's band is playing, kind of in stereo. And Buddy takes the first solo, and it's a very Buddy-like solo, kind of snare drum-centric, but great. Mm -hmm. Incredibly great. And as great as it was, I, I couldn't identify with it, in part because the technique intimidated me. Like, wow, I can't do that. And then when it came time for Max's solo, the bass is walking, and Max is playing the solo like he's a saxophone player, completely melodic. And I was like, I can relate to this. Mm. And uh, shortly after that, I heard uh, Joe Morello play Take Five, mm -hmm. Dave Brubeck. Morello was greatly influenced by Max Roach. Um, and you can hear Morello. And so I have a recording, The Advanced Stage of Nine, uh, with the Kenton Band. And uh, playing this uh, D. Barton tune called "The Waltz of the Prophets" with the Kenton Band, and, mm -hmm. and at the end, you know, and and at, at music camps, uh, this company would record all the performances. You could order the record and mm -hmm. wait for months for it to arrive, and it finally came. Wow, a record! And, um, and Stan said, 
you can hear him on the recording, he goes, solo, Peter. So I started to play it solo. And it's, uh, I think the acorn does become the oak tree. Uh, but my acorn was well informed by Max by way of mm -hmm. Joe Morello. It's a, it's, it's a solo I, I might still play today. This is interesting.
You're listening to WLIW-FM, also heard on WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. And this is the Jam Session Radio Hour in an interview of Peter Erskine by Dave Schroeder. Now, I, I want to get back to your uh, weather report issue with you, you, weren't, uh, you, you weren't happy in weather report, or I should say that was oh, something that... no, just Zavinal was a stern a, taskmaster. Yes. And, uh, you know, when I joined the band, uh, first off, you know, I was an improbable choice. Uh, here's a guy that's been on tour with Stan Kenton's big band and Maynard right. Ferguson's big band, and you know we were doing a lot of the, the the bop book, but we were also you know recording disco versions of the main title right. music from Star Wars, and right. you know playing a lot of bullshit. So yeah, why did I get called to play that? Well, Jocko had come to a gig in Florida, invited by a trumpet player in the band who had played on Jocko's first album. A Maynard gig. Yeah, Maynard gig, yeah. A trumpeter named Ron Tooley, who mm -hmm. now, do, I think he does Saturday Night Live. He mm -hmm. played in Thad and Mel's band, a great trumpet player. And he had called Jocko up expecting to get his answering machine. And Jocko picked up the phone. So they're chatting, and then Ron says, hey, you know, so we're in town tonight. Do you want to come see the band? And Jocko said, no, nah, it's okay. I caught you last time. And then Ron said, well, we got a new drummer. You might want to check this guy out. Mm. And then Jocko said, okay, I'll see you. And I'm embarrassed to say the, f the first words I said to Jocko Pastorius. Now, of course, I was a big fan of his from his solo album and um, was looking forward to meeting him. And I expected him to look like the photo on his first album, which is this very dramatic black and white uh, picture and he looks European, I can't quite, but he, he looks sophisticated. And I see Ron is talking to this guy wearing a Phillies baseball cap. He has long, greasy hair, hadn't washed it. Um, kind of goofy glasses and a shirt that was buttoned up to the top button. And I saw Ron standing there, so I, I went over. Actually, Ron had his trumpet under his arm and I remember walking up and, you know, trying to blow into the, uh, how did that sound? I tried blowing a note into the, into his trumpet. And he, oh, oh. He was annoyed and then oh, saw it was me. Oh, well, Peter, hey, say hi to Jocko Pastorius. And I see this kind of goofy looking guy. So I, just, I looked at him, kind of smiled and said, wow. I said, no sh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, nice to meet you and we chatted for a bit and it was time to go play the next set so I excused myself so I was walking to the bandstand Jocko calls out to me he goes hey man I turned around he said have fun now no one had ever said that to me it was always you know have a good set or play well which implied somewhere that there was going to be some scorekeeping mm -hmm. going on. And so I had fun. I didn't feel at all self-conscious. And that evening Jocko played me, uh, several of us. Uh, uh, and this is the power of music. For whatever reputation jazz musicians 
may have, or whatever, you know. Uh, and any young people when it comes to drinking, or taking drugs, whatever. Um, there was a soda machine out in the hallway. We had no, no one had thought to grab any beers or, or anything else to drink. Um, there were no drugs. We stayed up almost until dawn listening to heavy weather over and over. We wouldn't let Jocko leave. Finally he said, like, I gotta go home. You guys can keep the cassette, you know. Mm. Uh, and I told Jocko, I said, this is the version of the band I've been waiting for. And I loved Mysterious Traveler. I loved Eric Gravatz playing. I loved all the versions of Weather Report. You know, and basically I, I liked all the drummers in Weather Report more than me, even today, mm -hmm. you know, including Omar who followed me. I love the way these guys play. Um, we can oftentimes be our own harsh critics, uh, but it felt very comfortable and natural to, to meet Jocko. And, and I called him up to thank him for letting us hear the music as we were leaving Florida. And he, he said, I'm going to call you one of these days. And I was like, sure, you know, thanks, and hung up. And, uh, and they did. And I actually turned it down the first time because I was in the middle of a tour with Maynard and felt I'd committed and had an obligation to do that. It was kind of short notice. They wanted me to come out. Um, that made a bit of an impression, I think. Uh, now they're getting a little more intrigued. Who is this guy? And they call me another time, and I couldn't turn it down. So I kind of lined everything up and gave my notice to Maynard. Um, I did have one test. Uh, Zavano called me up and, and I, I remember I, I had been taking a nap and so it was a, a, the whole phone call felt inconclusive and I wasn't sure what he was probing or looking for. So he had someone in the management office call me up. And, Hi Peter, I'm, I'm calling from Weather Reports Management and Joe just has one more question for you. Yeah. He wants to know, can you play the drum beat to Nubian Sundance, the, the opening track of mm -hmm. Mysterious Traveler? Now, I used to play that during sound checks with Maynard, you know, for fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm 23 years old, so typical 23-year-old answer. I just said, yeah. I said, you tell Joe I can play the shit out of it. <laughs> he said, okay, thank you. <laughs> so I get called to join the band. Well, to go out to Hollywood. Now, they need a drummer to go to Japan for a tour. The band was committed to doing this tour, Japan and Australia. Um, first night, uh, now, uh, mind you, my experience was I was the, the, the good, obedient big band drummer. You know, put the chart in front of me, play the setups, and be exciting. And I had a passion for music, but I also tried to do the gig. Um, I get to the rehearsal uh, studio in Hollywood early, and set up the drums, meet all the crew guys, and then someone comes over and says, uh, the fellas called, they're, they're going to be a couple hours late. Mm, fine. So instead of a one o'clock rehearsal, maybe it's going to be a four o'clock rehearsal, four o'clock. Uh, sorry, the guys called, they're, they're going to be a couple more hours. So I don't know what's up, but finally about seven o'clock. They all enter the studio together, kind of saunter in. 
I was glad to see Jocko. I smiled at him, he smiled at me. He just kind of waved and went right back out the door. Now Zavano approaches. He has a, a dried marijuana roach, a little bit of a marijuana cigarette stuck to his lower lip. Mm -hmm. He's just checking me out. And sticks out his hand. Wayne is very friendly, big, beautiful smile. Say hello, and that's it. I'm just left standing there. Now, had rehearsal started at 1 p.m., I would have waited to be asked to play. And what do you want me to do? But now I'm just bored, you know, because I've been there so long. So Zavano's ignoring me, and he's up at his keyboards, and he's checking out his Prophet synth had just been returned, and he's checking out the sound and playing. So I just went up to the drums and, and started to throw down. I just started playing. And, and he looked kind of surprised, and he starts playing, and then Wayne comes on stage. Then Jocko finally returns with a six-pack of Heineken beer. <laughs> Big smile. It's like, this is what he was hoping might happen. So he puts the beer in the fridge, it's SIR Studios. He jumps up on stage, and almost like it was choreographed, I remember we're playing, he turns to his left, and his bass comes flying, uh, you know, from the tech. The guy tosses it, he catches it midair, throws his strap on, and, and we do a 40-minute impromptu medley, like a jam. And, you know, I've done my homework, and, and that's one really important thing. You've got to do your homework. So I know all the tunes. We're kind of seamlessly going from one to the other. <clears throat> I remember looking out at one point, and I was surprised to see Tom Scott standing there. Jocko had asked him to come check it out. And I thought, well, that's a good sign, because Tom was standing there with his mouth open. Just kind of like that. So kind of playing for my life at this point. We're going to interview Tom later today. Are you? Yeah. Sweet guy. He was so helpful. He was really encouraging. That we, we hung out most of that night. And of mm -hmm. course, I'm naive. I said, how do these guys stay up so late? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so we finally get to uh, Gibraltar. This, uh, and it has this vamp that goes on, you know, one, two, boop, 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 uh, and building an excitement again, you know, I'm playing for my life, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, just all the pistons were firing. Uh, Joe finally triumphantly, boom, 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 bop, boom, bop, and we end. So they all start laughing and high fiving. I take that to be a good sign. Uh, Joe said, "We don't need to rehearse no more." You know, so we call it, and Joe said, "No rehearsal tomorrow, but." Uh, this after he made a phone call. We're going to take a photo. I take that to be a good sign. Mm -hmm. Photo, cool. Then I go out with Jocko. I'm riding shotgun in the car and go to this house and that house and just hanging out and blah, blah, blah. Not too much sleep the next morning. We get up and Jocko says, come on, man, we've got to get you some, some hipper clothes. And so he takes me... <clears throat> to a clothing store in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> funny little uh, footnote. Uh, uh, I purchased a whole bunch of stuff that he, and, and they were pretty hip clothes. I wore them for the first couple tours. 
but that gave him an opportunity uh, to uh, get two or three pair of, of pants under the pants he had worn to the shop. So he shoplifted all this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll and, edit that out. Uh, we, no, you don't have that. <laughs> um, so uh, we go to, uh, uh, to the same rehearsal studio, and now there's a photographer, and we're going to pose for this photo. Now, I want to tell my buddies in Maynard's band, you know, hey, I got the gig. It's worked out. So, you know, we're posing, looking in the camera and all this shit. And I said, hey, Joe. What? I said, uh, can I tell my friends, uh, oh, can I ask you a question? And he goes, yeah. We're still posing. I said, yeah, I was just wondering, can I tell my friends I'm in the band? Posing. Joe goes, you can tell your friends you're going to Japan. So I had solved the immediate problem. They needed a drummer for Japan. And then the Japan tour was you know, kind of a spectacularly great little honeymoon.
We're so happy you were able to join us and listen to this really interesting interview of Peter Erskine. Uh, We can learn so much from these people that Dave Schroeder has interviewed in his very interesting fashion. And and, and again, this is really done for students. So, um, you know, they're talking about people that uh, you're going to be familiar with some and not others, but we're giving you a chance to give us a chance to really give you some some unusual good music that you may not have heard before that can lead you into uh, enjoying these groups and, and others. And we'll continue to do so. Um, So thanks very much for being with us. This has been the Jam Session Radio Hour. And uh, our music uh, has been chosen in part by Fernando Valadares. And our theme this evening um, uh, for our show is done by Silvano Monasterios from his um, track called Tropical Mirage. Rafael Alvarez. Rafael Alvarez is our co-producer and post-production wonder. Cleus Brondoller is our musical director. I'm John Landis, your host, and I want to thank NYU, Dave Schroeder, there at the Steinhardt School, producers uh, Joseph Vela, Ed Barada, Shake Up Productions, and made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. Thanks so much for being with us at the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is a part one of a two-part series, two-part series of interviews on Peter Erskine. And we'll catch you next time. Stay well. Please uh, take good care and good night. <laughs>